There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. The Tito's handmade vodka was ice cold, condensation trickling down the copper metal shaker. It's got to be fresh lime, they drawled. Tart, but balanced. They weren't normally this finicky about cocktail hour. But with Tito's, it had to be perfect. Simple syrup, the final ingredient. The sound of shaking filled the room to the brim. For the perfect pour at next week's book club, try the Tito's Gim Literature. Find the recipe at titosvodka.com. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof, crafted to be savored responsibly. Grammar Girl here. This week, I have a quick and dirty tip about arch enemies, a show about the conjunction nor, and a tidbit about Beowulf, the TV show Firefly, and the word reaver. Last week, I got an email from Rob T., who found a spelling mistake on my About Grammar Girl page. There's a segment that reads like this. Mignon believes that learning is fun, and the vast rules of grammar are wonderful fodder for lifelong study. She strives to be a friendly guide in the writing world. Her arch enemy, two words, is the evil grammar maven, who inspires terror in the untrained and is neither friendly nor helpful. I had written arch enemy as two words, and Rob believed it should be one word. And when I started researching the spellings, I found a bunch of interesting things. First, I checked five dictionaries, Merriam-Webster, AmericanHeritageDictionary.com, the Macmillan Dictionary, and the Collins Dictionary. They all spell it as one word. But some of them noted that it's often used to refer to the devil, and when it is, it's capitalized. So I didn't know that. Then I checked the Oxford English Dictionary because I wanted to see if the spelling had changed over time. Often, a word will start out as two words and later become merged into one word. That wasn't exactly the case here. Arch enemy was hyphenated in most older examples. But the oldest example, the first use of this word was in 1550, was as one word. And it was from Coverdale. You're probably wondering who Coverdale was and why I'm so excited. Miles Coverdale compiled the first complete version of the Bible that was ever published in modern English. It was also the first official printed version of the Bible in English in England. He built on the work of William Tyndale, who just a few years earlier had been put to death for translating the New Testament into English. Someday I'll do a whole show about the history of Bible translations in the evolution of English because all the people who did them were influential. But the short story today is that Coverdale is a big name in the history of English, so I was excited when he popped up as the first person to ever use the word archenemy. Here's the sentence. He is the deadly archenemy of God and of all mankind. So again, it's one word, and it's referring to the devil, although it wasn't capitalized in this particular example. Finally, I did a Google Ngram search, which shows the instance of words and phrases in published books that Google has scanned. And that showed me something interesting, too. It looks as if there was a pretty dramatic shift in spelling around 1940. Before 1940, the two-word version was more popular. 
But after 1940, the one-word option is more popular. The shift is much more dramatic in American books than in British books. In American books, you see this dramatic shift, whereas in the British books, the two spellings seem to converge in popularity around 1940, and then they're still in equal use today. There's a short article about the word archenemy on quickanddirtytips.com, and I'll put a picture of the graph there for you to see. So I was wondering whether it had something to do with World War II, but it wasn't really a dramatic increase in the use of the phrase archenemy. It was just a shift in how it was spelled. I couldn't find a reason for the shift in spelling that only seemed to happen in American English, so I'm hoping one of you will know why the spelling changed. If you do, please leave a comment on the Arch Enemy article at quickanddirtytips.com. Until then, the bottom line is that Robert was right. Being an American, I definitely should have spelled it as one word. I've changed it on the website, and thank you for sending me down this interesting research rabbit hole. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Everyone knows that the best way to tell a good story is over a good drink. Spirit in a Bottle, Tells and Drinks from Tito's Handmade Vodka, brings them together. In its first ever cocktail book, Tito's offers fans recipes, mixology tips, and a never-before-seen look at its journey, from a one-room distillery to becoming America's favorite vodka. Order your copy today at titosvodka.com book. Read it and sip with Tito's. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof, crafted to be savored responsibly. Remember the frustration of trying to memorize vocabulary and grammar rules only to find you couldn't actually use the language in real life? Well, there's a better way to learn. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with millions of users learning 25 different languages, and you can get it on your desktop or as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone immerses you in many ways with its intuitive process. It's really different. You pick up the language naturally, first with words, then the phrases, and then with sentences. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Is it rosettastone.com slash grammar. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash grammar today. Next, I have a piece by Neil Whitman about the negative conjunctions. He writes, in a recent episode on coordinating conjunctions, I talked about the popular mnemonic fanboys to remember them. For, and, nor, but, or, yet, and so. I talked about how the conjunctions for, so, and yet are different from the better-known conjunctions and, but, and, or. But I didn't talk about nor because it's unusual enough to deserve an episode on its own. Well, this is that episode. 
We'll be talking about negative conjunctions and what they can tell us about parts of speech in general. As I said in the earlier episode about coordinating conjunctions, or coordinators for short, one of their two main properties is that they can connect words or phrases of the same category to create a larger phrase of that same category. The other is that the coordinator has to come between the words or phrases it connects. Nor has these two properties, so it's definitely a coordinator, but it's severely limited in the kinds of words or phrases it can connect. It's a lot like for and so, which in American English can join only clauses. Even then, a condition has to be satisfied. The first clause has to be a negative clause. For example, you could say, Fenster doesn't like to do his homework, nor does he check his answers when he does do it. The verb in the first clause is negative, doesn't like. The negation can also be implied. Let's change our example to, Fenster turned in his math worksheet two days late, nor did he check his answers before turning it in. Now the verb in the first clause is positive, turned in his math worksheet two days late. Even so, there's an implied negation, not on time. If you try to use nor to join two clauses when there's nothing negative about the first one at all, it sounds bad. To illustrate, let's adjust our example one more time. Fenster completed his math worksheet and turned it in right on time. Nor did he check his answers when he turned it in. What? That doesn't even make sense. In listening to these examples, you may have noticed another wrinkle in how we use nor. We have to reverse the order of the subject and the auxiliary verb in the second clause. We don't say, nor he checked his answers before he turned it in. It has to be, nor did he check his answers. This isn't unique to the coordinator nor. It happens any time we begin a clause with a negation or a negative-like word or phrase. For example, never does he check his answers, or rarely does he check his answers, or only when reminded does he check his answers. However, other than the requirement of a negative first clause and flip-flopping the subject and auxiliary verb in the second clause, can we sum up by saying that nor is like for and so, because the only things it can join are clauses? Well, not quite. For many speakers and writers, nor can also join other kinds of phrases if they're inside a negated phrase. For example, take the idiom, I haven't seen hide nor hair of him. It means I haven't even had a glimpse of someone. Now for me, this phrasing is a bit odd. I'd want to say I haven't seen hide or hair of him. Similarly, for many speakers, a sentence like, Aunt Margaret was never hateful nor mean, is completely normal. But for me, it would have been, Aunt Margaret was never hateful or mean. Using or instead of nor in these situations reminds me of a rule from classic logic and computer science called De Morgan's Law. If you've studied logic or computer science, you'll know immediately what I mean. But if you haven't, that's okay. The main point is that the phrasing never hateful or mean mirrors classic logic more closely than never hateful nor mean. But as you probably know if you're listening to this podcast, no natural language is completely logical, not English or any other. 
So what do the usage guides have to say about nor instead of or to join items inside a negated phrase? The Merriam-Webster Dictionary of English Usage cites two usage guides published more than 100 years apart, each giving different advice. The older one, published in 1881, calls for nor, while the newer one, published in 1982, calls for or. Their conclusion is that or must have sometimes been used like this in the late 1800s, or why else would a usage guide have had anything to say about it? And that, quote, it has become prevalent in the centuries since, unquote. Garner's Modern American Usage says that or is usually the better choice, although he doesn't call nor nonstandard. The most interesting advice I found was in Fowler's Modern English Usage, originally published in 1926. Fowler makes an interesting distinction, talking about a period of English when the present-day system of negating verbs hadn't completely settled, so that instead of saying that someone doesn't speak, you could also say they speak not. Fowler calls for nor when you're using this now archaic style and you want to join two negated verbs. For his example, he negates both verbs in the sentence, he moves and speaks, like this. He moves not, nor speaks. It's only when you're using the now standard negation with an auxiliary verb, according to Fowler, that you should use or instead of nor. So in the more modern phrasing, he moves not nor speaks would be he does not move or speak. Fowler's reasoning is that the not attaches to the auxiliary does and therefore applies to both verbs in the same way as the auxiliary verb does. Of course, nor is perfectly standard when it's part of the correlative conjunction pair neither nor. Then it can join just about anything. So when Severus Snape tells Harry Potter, you are neither special nor important, using neither nor to join two adjectives is fine. However, if Snape had said, you're not special nor important, that would have been a bit old-fashioned. The more modern would be, you are not special or important. And while we're on the subject of negative coordinators, here's a coordinator that gets completely left out of the fanboy's mnemonic, not. Traditional grammars classify not as an adverb, which it certainly is in phrases such as did not check his answers. But it acts a lot more like a coordinator in sentences such as we want jobs, not handouts, and do it later, not now. It's joining two items in these examples, nouns and adverbs, and it comes between them instead of somewhere else. The exclusion of not shows once again that parts of speech are not always clear-cut, especially for function words like conjunctions, prepositions, and determiners. Mnemonics such as fanboys can help you memorize the most common members of some set, but don't take them as the final word on what's in and what's out. Not every member these lists include is universally agreed on, nor do they capture every possible member of a set. That segment was written by Neil Whitman, who has a PhD in linguistics, blogs at literalminded.wordpress.com, and is a regular contributor to the online resource Visual Thesaurus. Finally, this week's tidbit is about Beowulf, the TV show Firefly, and the word Reaver. 
I saw the movie Guardians of the Galaxy last week, which was great fun. And afterward, I saw a lot of people talking online about how it reminded them of the TV show Firefly, which I also loved. And that reminded me of some research I did a while ago about the word reaver. In Firefly, reavers are the men who've gone so wild that they've lost their humanity. They're the savages on the frontier and the scary boogeyman of the show. I became interested in the word reaver when I saw a line from Beowulf that included it. On the misty moors, no one knows where these reavers from hell roam on their errands. Reavers jumped out at me because the only time I remembered hearing that word was in Firefly. And much like in Firefly, the reavers in Beowulf are terrifying monsters. So I rushed over to my Oxford English Dictionary browser window and discovered that reaver is an ancient word and is actually not unique to Beowulf. It's found in multiple Old English texts and has been in steady use ever since to describe monsters, raiders, and pirates. To reave is also a verb to describe plundering, raiding, and stealing. Beowulf was written sometime around AD 1000, so it was written in Old English. It's one of the oldest known manuscripts in Old English literature, so the writing is dramatically different from the writing we use today. It's essentially unrecognizable as English. So what I read and what most all of us read when we read Beowulf is a translation. A reader going by B. Slade showed me the lines written in Old English, and he pointed out that the word my translation was interpreting as reavers was written as hellrunen in the Old English. And he explained, quote, hell, H-E-L, is hell, H-E-L-L, and runen is cognate with runes, but in Old English often had to do with secrets, unquote. And with that clue, I found another translation on the West Virginia University website that uses the word demons instead of reavers. But the monster dark death shadow was pursuing. It lay in wait and ambushed proven retainers and young warriors, Perpetual night held the misty moors. Men do not know whither such demons in motion go. And then a reader named Paul pointed out that William Faulkner's last novel was called The Reavers, and I discovered that reavers are also monsters in the Rune Lords books by David Farland. So much as I would have liked to think of the reavers in Firefly coming directly from Beowulf, that's probably not what happened. But it's still fun to come across really old words being used in modern works, and I learned that to reave is a verb. After my trip to the British Museum, I was thinking about things that are common to all civilizations, the things we have or do today that they did or had thousands of years ago, like playing card games and cooking and wearing some kind of decoration such as jewelry. And this seems like another example. Fear of monsters in the Outlands? have been with us for thousands of years. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. As you're all getting ready to go back to school, remember to visit my website when you need help with your writing or just want to read something interesting about language. It's quickanddirtytips.com. Even after all these years, I still love writing about language and sharing these kinds of stories with you. So thanks for listening. Everyone knows that the best way to tell a good story 
is over a good drink. Spirit in a Bottle, Tales and Drinks from Tito's Handmade Vodka, brings them together. In its first ever cocktail book, Tito's offers fans recipes, mixology tips, and a never-before-seen look at its journey, from a one-room distillery to becoming America's favorite vodka. Order your copy today at titosvodka.com slash book. Read it and sip with Tito's. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof, crafted to be savored responsibly. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.